1: From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg, and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing.
0: He's a great creative figure, but he... So you don't want to do a book about, you know, he went he went to this team and he won these competitions and he got these trophies and he was Footballer of the Year, and there's all that's boring. And it's, it's just not very... Interesting. What's interesting about him is he's an interesting character and he's got a very interesting mind and he was an extraordinary player to watch. He talks about his process, you know, he can break down things that he did in training, things that he, you know, his famous moments, you know, the goal against Newcastle, the goal against, New, uh, against Argentina, things like that. Those two goals, we have like whole chapters, you know, four or five pages on each goal. Dennis Bergkamp was a unique footballer, a player who inspired
1: Arsene Wenger's Arsenal to greatness in the 90s and noughties, with an exquisite blend of technique, balletic grace, and unforgettable moments. It was always going to take something special to encapsulate the Dutchman's unique talents in book form. Stillness and Speed, Bergkamp's 2013 authorised biography, does justice to his remarkable talents. Written as a collaboration between David Winner, author of Brilliant Orange, and Dutch journalist Jaap Visser, Stillness and speed moves between hugely insightful interviews with Bergkamp and traditional biography. The Dutchman's breakdown of his own talents are captivating but so are the contributions from Wenger Vieira and Thierry Henry The Daily Mail said every coach, manager, player or academy recruit should buy it and learn from one of the game's greats. This is my conversation with David Winner who talks about the process of writing one of the great modern football biographies well, just to, to segue seamlessly into um, Dennis Bergkamp, again, that's a, a book that I I really, I really love. And he's, a, he's a, a kind of minor character in
0: Brilliant Orange. I think there's, there's quite a... Well, that was the first time we met. I just butted in on somebody else's interview because I had to speak. Yeah. I wasn't going to be this close to Dennis and not say something to him. And he again, he didn't say just bugger off, I'm busy. He very generously, and the, the journalist was kind of annoyed. But it was an interesting conversation for two minutes. Mm-hmm. I asked him why he wasn't a killer in the way that, you know, some of the great goal scorers are. And he talks very interestingly about it. And there was a bit of a connection there just in that in that one thing. And then he read subsequently the book. He liked it. Um, and that's how I ended up being involved with that. So, yeah, it, it's in consequence anyway of Brilliant Orange, that book. But it was the, it's, it's co-written. There were two editions. There, yeah. was, there was a <clears throat> Dutch one and an English one with... Um, a very good Dutch journalist called Jart Visser, who, and, and again, it was done much too quickly in a way for various, the reason for that was because the English publishers wanted it to be marketed as an autobiography. And it wasn't, it's clearly a biography. And Dennis didn't want it to be that. So they argued, they wanted it in a, at a particular time, but they spent five months arguing about that. And then we had to do it quickly. But it, you know, that was, it was creative in a way to do it, to do it fast. And then Jaap was writing a very different book, and we were sharing material. I was basically doing the English stuff and the Italian stuff, and Jaap was doing the Dutch stuff. And we would both spend time with Dennis, usually separately, and then we would pool our material. And it was very difficult to do in that short space of time to adapt his material, which is written in a very different style, to to what I was doing to make it work as one thing. I mean, the the structure of it's
1: interesting. Um, I think one of the the problems that I've found with um, autobiographies over the years is you're you're basically you have this one voice from start to finish, and yes. you're in that
0: person's head. But sometimes something. it's in the journalist's version of that. Well, person's exactly. Voice, which exactly.
1: is, it's so transparently ridiculous. It is exactly, yeah. and I think it's a really it's a really interesting uh, format when when the writer comes in and gives you a bit of context, and and that that was obviously something that you. Thought long and hard about you. Referenced uh, Rogan Taylor's Puscas and Puscas, yeah, and uh, a book of essays on uh, on Hitchcock.
0: I think as well. It was, it was it Truffaut, to Francois Truffaut. Um, there was a film made about it after this book. I mean, I, it, it became better known again. But it's he's many hours with Hitchcock where there wasn't little recording technical. They had to go to a studio to do recordings. And and Truffaut, a great filmmaker talking to an even greater one one that he revered but they're talking as it's sparkling it's it's fantastic conversations about film now how Hitchcock did his films and his ideas so they're sort of going through film by film but it's not about production it's all about the core of the creative energy and I thought well that's a really great way of doing a book with Dennis because what's interesting about him is that he He's a great creative figure, but he... So you don't want to do a book about, you know, he went, he went to this team and he won these competitions and he got these trophies and he was Footballer of the Year and he's, there's all that's boring because you can look it up on the internet. And it's, it's just not very interesting. What's interesting about him is, well, there are many interesting things, he's an interesting character and he's got a very interesting mind and he was an extraordinary player to watch. Um, it's to get, But he talks about it. He talks about his process you know micro he can break down things that he did in training things that he you know his famous moments you know the goal against newcastle the goal against New, uh, against argentina things like that those two goals we have like whole chapters you know four or five pages on each goal and he breaks down his thinking millisecond by millisecond and it's 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 thrilling because you watch those those things hundreds of times many hundreds of times and you'll still get goosebumps Watching the turn and the, 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 the shot and the goal against Newcastle or the, the way he, he catches this crazy long ball like he's caught it with his hand mm. against Argentina and he turns inside and he finishes it. And, it was, um, and how did he get to that process? How did he get to that point rather? You know, His career is interesting not because he won medals or trophies or cups, but because he's developing as, a, as an artist really all the way through. And he's thinking, and he's developing, and he's clashing with other cultures. So he's a sort of supreme embodiment of Cruyffian, Ajax, Dutch football. And he was immensely influenced by Cruyff. And then he takes it abroad to Italy, where it doesn't work. They will not change. And he goes really as a, as a, as a disciple and apostle of, of this Cruyffian idea. And then he comes to London at Arsenal, where it works perfectly. And so it's the process of cultural change. As well as personal change for him. So, Italian football culture was resistant. So, there's a, I spent a couple of weeks in Milan and, 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 and spoke to some of his old teammates, uh, Riccardo Ferri, uh, Bergami. Seppi Bergami, Beppe Bergami. Um, and his his first manager Osvaldo Bognoli, who was uh, who did with Verona in eighty whatever it was eighty five, what Ranieri did with Leicester last year, and he's a much loved figure. But Dennis wasn't terribly sentimental about it. So they get a very interesting format, and it's a tribute to Dennis's strength and integrity and willing openness, you know, willingness to sort of question and develop all the time. That he said, "Well, um, I think I proposed it, and then he said, Yeah, Um, that I would go to Milan, and talk to these guys about why it all went wrong. And then he would have his say afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it was quite funny. He said, Can I say my thing as well? (laughs) Yeah, it's your book, of course you can. (laughs) But he was, uh, so he was up for doing that. And the idea was to have him playing off other voices. So uh, in London, Wenger, Tony Adams, you know, a bunch of the Thierry Henry, a bunch of the old Arsenal players, and Vic Akers, who was was the the kit man. and his friend became the guy who was closest to at Arsenal, who used to go on the, the road trips with him, keeping company on the because he would never fly. So and they became very close. And Vic again was another person, you know. He did, and then Dennis would comment, Sol Campbell, a, a bunch of the old Arsenal people. Um, and so that was that was a very creative way of doing it. And of course, Dennis is the main voice. Of course, he is, and he comes in, and he. But it's all in a context. So we're talking about culture, about the, the, the changing. Of a culture and of a football culture, and and also these great sort of artistic, creative mm. moments.
1: I mean, it is thrilling, and it's also quite rare for uh, an athlete of that at that level to have those powers of self-reflection yep. and analysis. Where does that come from? With Dennis, did, did 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 he keep keep journals over the years? Did he look back at
0: footage of himself playing? No, he actually he said. One of the frustrations was that he didn't do any of that, so he had to work kind of quite hard to say, well, Next week we're going to talk about such and such, and he would think about it. And so when you saw him again, he'd he'd have not not exactly prepared, but he'd have he'd have sort of revisited it. And during the course of conversations, he would remember things. He'd, oh God, I'd forgotten that. And so it was um, the Dutch one. He was particularly keen to do. So it was a huge like a like two phone books together with, with hundreds of Colour pictures, and it was very expensive. I thought it was like sixty euros or something. Big sort of coffee table thing for his family. That was his kind of. His, I want to be able to give my children and my you know my friends and my family. Oh, this is my career. So, and that's a much more kind of a conventional, you know, season by season. Um, and I thought that for for the English and international market that wouldn't work because. Nobody's terribly interested in Ajax against, you know, Hair and Vein in 1972. It's not interesting at all. But, you know, so you have to do it more thematically. And it's broadly chronological, but it's, it's all this other stuff going in. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was totally up for that, and he was, you know, he was very creative. And every time you, you had a conversation, I mean, because I was based, I was living in London, I would go over... And we had a couple of like, entire days sitting in a cafe near near his home. <laughs> just uh, exhilarating, and was spiritual experience mm-hmm. because he's he's got this extraordinary presence, and he's much funnier and warmer. You know, his his uh, public image is not really who he is, but he's very complete. He doesn't really need anybody. This sort of idea that he's aloof and cold, and so he just doesn't need people very much. So that it comes across in yeah. that way.
1: I mean, yeah, you actually you go. Call-
0: uh, a walkabout with him through his, his, his old neighbourhoods where he grew up
1: and stuff, don't you? Is yeah, actually, right? that
0: would yes. I, I spent time with him, but some of that is from Yap, right? Okay, yeah. So you see us as, as a double act, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it should be both of our names on the cover, by the way. Um, and the publisher said, so, "Well, you're ne- I'm known, Yap Visser is not known, so we're just going to have you more prominent." <laughs> and that, that was wrong. I felt
1: in, in terms of the, the publication of the book from a distance, it seemed to me that the reviews were were very favourable. People seem to have bought it in, in good it numbers.
0: Very, very, yeah, but there's it's um, that's Arsenal fans mostly.
1: I was going to say yeah. there is a tradition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think? This goes back to Nick Hornby and Fever Pitch, or, or,
0: or why there's so much writing about Arsenal?
1: Yeah, well, just in terms of re- reflective views on football and
0: writing about football creatively,
1: Arsenal got a... A literary story.
0: football stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is an earlier tradition. I mean, Nick Hornby doesn't invent it. No. And my hero was, is Brian Glanville, who was writing this kind of stuff from when he was really very young. But he's, he's always looking abroad at a time when nobody else is doing that, really. So when I was growing up, you know, a student and, and young journalist, people who liked sport and, and, and sports writing, you know, the, the two that we looked to were McIlvaney mm. and Glanville. And in football, Glanville always was the more interesting because he knew more, and his opinions were much more sort of vigorously expressed. Mm -hmm. You know, and he was very rarely wrong. And he'd be very hard on people, but also very loving and generous about people that he admired. Which tended to be, you know, there were plenty of British ones as well. But he looked to Italy and he was the one that alerted me in the 70s to what was, to something special going on in you know as a sort of 12 or 14 year old so i was reading this stuff in the sunday times something something remarkable was going on in holland otherwise i probably wouldn't have noticed it the, the question was about why arsenal yeah well, yeah, it's a kind of um, it's it's an odd thing looking back because in the in the seventies and eighties you you could hardly imagine a less fashionable thing than following Arsenal, and the glamorous team was Spurs in the sixties and through the into the seventies as well. So uh, there's a strong, if you look at Nick Hornby's book, it, there's a strong sort of apologetic element. And mm-hmm. you know, a big theme of the thing is I'm not a moron just because I yeah. like. Yeah. Football and Arsenal in particular, and he, you know, makes jokes about it. About you know, I'm not completely stupid, which obviously he's not. You know, he's Cambridge educated, brilliant writer, and apparently, I've heard that you know his friends at the time when he was writing it felt de- desperately sorry for him. You know, poor old Nick he's, he's, he's pursuing this ridiculous project that nobody's going to be interested in. Why? Why? Who gives a shit about his psychoanalysis and his pathetic obsession? <laughs> and then it was a <laughs> sensation. But it's preceded by the 90 World Cup, and Pete Davis is all played out, all played out. and um, Arthur Smith's An Evening with Gary Lineker. So these are the kind of later... Suddenly, it's... Yeah, it's been written about and talked about a lot, but you know this thing that happens, it goes into the toilet. It's almost dead by the late 80s. And Heisel is not talked about enough, I think, that this was this was the absolute bottom of the barrel. I mean, this is... It, it's close to being outlawed. I mean, it's, it can't go any lower. Yeah. This is an absolute degradation. I stopped going to football for about three years after that. And it was the Dutch, actually, watching the Dutch in 88 that kind of pulled me back. And, um, and then there's the horror of, of Hillsborough. And then somehow there's this kind of revival. And it's, to do with, it, it's connected to England doing well in 90 and Pavarotti's presence and the song <laughs> and all that. So um, the context, the cultural context in which it becomes... Yeah. But remember how apologetic he was. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the huge success, because he really hit a nerve. And it's such a beautiful book. It's, mm. a, it's a brilliant, funny, wise, great book. And the other thing that I thought when I was doing mine because we're sort of the same age, he and I, and same club. Whatever I do, it cannot be in any way like Fever Pitch. That was, like, one rule I had. You you must not, because there were an awful lot of very boring, bad books sort of imitating him. But uh, that's, okay. that was a genre that was already played out, exhausted, by the late 90s. So I was definitely not going to do that. And then he liked, he liked Brilliant Orange, which was nice. He Even The Times in... Or late two thousands, two thousand eight or nine or something. Asked him for his favorite to list his favorite forty books, and he put me at number one. It was like Dostoevsky. My mum rang me up. Said, Have you seen this? So this is list, he made this list Dostoevsky and Dickens and, and you, <laughs> which is ridiculous but very very friendly. Absolutely wonderful. Well, David, listening, it's
1: been amazing hearing the story behind um, these two great books. Thank you so much for your time.
0: My big pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks to David for agreeing to this interview. Keep up with David on Twitter at DwinnerA. If you like this, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. And if you read a story that you think would make a good feature for the podcast, let us know on Twitter at Backpage Press or email backpage at backpagepress.co.uk.